0: guys and welcome to episode 4 of History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika,
1: and I'm Sudha and we are right now in the middle of summer and parents across the country are wrestling with one big problem right now. Schools are reopening, they are releasing their plans and I'm conflicted like so many parents about whether it is safe enough for children to return to in-person education in schools, or is it safer to keep them online? So we thought this would be a good time for us to review the history of schooling in America and who the losers are.
0: So we decided to start at the very beginning, which is how the school setup was. I always believed that we had summers off in the U.S. because we were set up as an agricultural economy and summers were off for harvesting and all of that. However, that's not the real case. Before the Civil War, kids in rural areas went to school during the summer and the winter and actually stayed home during the spring and fall because that is when crops need to be planted and harvested.
1: In contrast, city kids went to school all year long, including the summers.
0: Yeah, so in Detroit in 1842, the academic year was 260 days. I would be so tired by that. (laughs) But one of the reasons why we started to get summers off was because cities got denser. And as they got denser, they got hotter because of the urban heat island effect, where brick and concrete can turn urban areas into almost kilns. And that's why a lot of America's middle and upper class families started going to the countryside and classrooms were now left half empty or completely empty every summer.
1: So legislators started arguing that kids should get the summer off anyway. They said that, oh, children should not go to school year round because it could strain their brains. You know, they falsely claimed that the brain would be overworked, just like other muscles if you use it all the time. This is completely opposite to the science that we know now today, where children actually lose skills during the summer.
0: But they didn't have air conditioning, so I understand why they were saying that. So... Along with the urban families leaving school rooms empty, rural classrooms were also starting to have problems as well because during the summers they would have their most inexperienced teachers including teenage girls teaching as opposed to older teachers that taught during the rest of the year. So education reformers were encouraging urban and rural schools to adopt a standardized year that we would have schooling and so they all decided that summers off would be the best option for everyone.
1: And that's how we got into our current pattern of schooling. Well, this is obviously a great industry now because the summer holiday season is when business entrepreneurs market to families that are looking to get away.
0: But the schools were set up only for white children in the U.S. And as the civil war came to the end and black families were slowly starting to be allowed to get into schools, finally, there was obviously a lot of segregation. The landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, Plessy versus Ferguson, was finally passed in 1896, and it upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation, which is the whole separate but equal doctrine. They said that schools could be separated based on the students' race, and that was an incredibly important case that defined a whole century of American experiences.
1: Right. Because of this law and quoting this law, restrictive Jim Crow legislation and a lot of different rules regarding separate public accommodations based on race became commonplace across the country.
0: Yeah. what they basically said was that the 14th Amendment, which allowed citizenship to all Americans, no matter race, it only applied to political and civil rights, and they claimed that social rights, like sitting in a railroad car that was of your choice rather than segregated ones, was not included in that, which we now know was incredibly biased and unfair. Unfair. So what did separate and equal
1: look like in during schooling in that era? So in Clarendon, South Carolina, 60 years ago, per pupil spending in schools for whites was more than four times the rate in schools for blacks.
0: Yeah, and there was a whole bunch of other injustices as well. Black students were basically learning in shacks and the capital value for schools for white students was nine times the value of the schools for black students. So obviously they had better resources as well.
1: Right, the pupil teacher ratio in the schools attended by whites, 28 is to one. For Black students, 47 is to 1.
0: Along with that, schools for Whites had flush toilets and outhouses for schools for Blacks. And buses were available to White students while Black students walked. Schools for Whites had janitors, and schools for Blacks were cleaned by teachers and students themselves.
1: The courses that were offered in the schools, especially high school vocational programs, were also very different. White schools offered typing and bookkeeping, and black schools offered agriculture and home economics.
0: Yes, and that is a trend that I'm sure you can see in schools today, too. It's not like that anymore, where there's not opportunities for everyone. But I feel like...
1: There are some remnants of that original setup, even now, in certain schools. (music) Talking about legislation, because of this... Classy um,
0: versus Ferguson
1: case, that led to another landmark case called Cumming v. Board of Education in 1899.
0: What Cumming versus the Board of Education was about was a high school in Richmond County, Georgia named Ware High School that was set to be closed and converted into four elementary schools. This enraged a lot of African-American parents because this was an all-black high school and it was the only all-black high school in that area.
1: And nope. the children who were studying there actually had no alternative if they closed that high school.
0: Yes. So JW Cumming, one of those parents, objected because the board couldn't levy taxes from them. It supported a high school system that would only serve the white students because now all of these high school African-American students would have no options to go to school. However, the court ruled that this was constitutional and therefore it was passed and for a while a lot of, in a lot of counties in a lot of places across America schools along with being unfairly weighted against black people were also closing down because of a lack of resources and the taxes that African American people were paying were going towards schools that they couldn't even attend.
1: All of this changed on paper with the most landmark education case in this country that all of us have heard about, which is Brown versus Board of Education. Yes. This actually happened all the way later in 1954.
0: That's about 50 years after Cumming versus Board of Education and almost a hundred years after the Civil War. But Brown versus Board of Education was landmark because it finally prohibited Southern states from segregating schools by race. Basically, it annihilated that separate but equal doctrine that had been ruling the South and parts of the North since the Civil War. And it permitted that states and school districts could not designate schools whites only and blacks only.
1: I think many of us have seen that very iconic photograph of Ruby Bridges being escorted to school. Um, as the only black student in an all-white school um, because of Brown versus Board of Education.
0: Yes. And this is what essentially changed the landscape of American education. And although, you know, you look
1: at that picture and it's in black and white, you have to realize that this was not that long ago. Ruby Bridges is still alive today.
0: I know. And that's that's honestly very uh, scary to me that it took this long for something so blatantly racist to change.
1: Right. But did Brown versus Board of Education really change things? Because if you look at what happened initially, even though the law said that we had to desegregate, the communities put up a very big resistance to this.
0: Yeah. And resource inequality is still prevalent in a lot of schools today. After Brown versus Board of Education was passed, it still did nothing to change the resource inequality that there was disadvantaged students require much greater resources than middle-class white students had because they were able to get a full education before this case, and many black students didn't.
1: Right, if you look at many different metrics and parameters like early childhood programs, high-quality after-school and summer programs, full-service school health clinics, more skilled and experienced teachers, or smaller class sizes, disproportionately all of these resources are more prevalent in schools that have a higher percentage of white students
0: yes but why do we still have schools that have high white percentages and high black student percentages and high minority percentages why are our schools still segregated well that brings
1: us to the part which we don't really think about which is how the schools are funded right? Because schools are segregated today because the neighborhoods in which they are located are also segregated, if not strictly by race, then by opportunity or by socioeconomic status.
0: Basically, education policy is housing policy. And our residential areas are so segregated, not by law, but by social standards, that our schools have also become segregated in a way. So, During the World War II era, a lot of white people were starting to become afraid because people of color moved into predominantly white neighborhoods. And so these white residents, they became overwhelmed and started moving to suburbs, a term that we now call white flight. Mm -hmm.
1: And when they moved to the suburbs, they took their money with them and schools, which are primarily funded by local taxes, suffered as a result of this migration. In
0: 1934, segregation efforts were still being furthered by the Federal Housing Administration because they refused to insure mortgages in and near African-American predominant neighborhoods. And this policy is known as redlining. What that basically means is that they had a map and they would color code it by what neighborhoods were filled with what majority of people by race. And the African-American neighborhoods were colored red and they would refuse to allow mortgages to African-American people because they deemed them untrustworthy or they thought that they couldn't redeem these mortgages and loans.
1: Right. So, author Richard Rothstein says that housing programs begun under the New Deal were tantamount to a state-sponsored system of segregation.
0: That's right. The government's efforts were primarily designed to provide housing to white, middle-class, lower-middle-class families. And African-American people and other people of color were left out, and a lot of them were forced into urban housing projects.
1: So public schools, as you know, rely heavily on local property taxes. And so American schools have tended to reflect the educational values and financial capabilities of the communities in which they are located. If we look at top ranking public schools in this country and compare them to the bottom ranking public schools in this country, the com- the differences between them are so stark, they might as well be in two different countries.
0: Yes. And they might as well be segregated because for the vast majority of them, uh, better funded, uh, better rated high schools and middle schools and elementary schools are all predominantly white. And worse funded and worse rated schools are predominantly minority and black.
1: Right. And of course, it's not all just race, but also socioeconomic status and the economic capability of the families. But we know that those two metrics are parallel race in this country.
0: Yes, for the the most part. And in the same way, parallel to housing. And the effects of white flight are so important in modern day society. For neighborhoods with larger non-white presence, meaning mainly minority, white flight is instead more likely in middle class as opposed to poorer neighborhoods. So
1: when you look at white flight, are people leaving these communities because you know they are richer than the other people and so they can afford to move out or are they leaving mainly because of race? Well, if you look at the statistics right now, it looks like white flight is happening in middle class suburban neighborhoods in much greater numbers, which means that race might be a primary motivating factor
0: and that's not certain
1: Well if you look at groups you know white flight persists for groups even despite higher level of socioeconomic attainment in other words, white people are leaving communities even where the other people the non-white people are of higher socioeconomic status
0: yes so there is again, as we've noted in all of our episodes prior to, which you should definitely listen to if you haven't already, the main motivating factor here is fear. It's fear of the other, is fear of the different, and we need to work to fix that fear, because if not, it's, it's already taken over all of our lives and we need to start reclaiming them.
1: Right. It looks like this has become the theme of our podcast is that we are coming back again and again to this fear that we have of different communities living within America.
0: And that's because the victors always fear the losers.
1: (laughs) All right, well, two thirds of minority students are still attending schools that are predominantly minority, Mm -hmm. which means that we are all living in little silos in this country. And that is encouraging fear. Well, we're going to change course a little bit at this point and talk about even the best performing schools in this country, right? So, well, if all the resources are being allocated to the best uh, schools, which are predominantly white, well, how do they measure up against other countries? So there are two different programs that we look at to see how students are learning in America compared to other countries. The first one is called PISA, which is the Program for International Student Assessment. And this is an international assessment. It measures 15-year-olds across the world, and it has three domains, reading, math, and science. And they conduct this test every three years. The last one was done in 2018. And if you look at those results, well, America didn't do so well. The average U.S. score was lower than the scores of other developed countries. It was also racially different within America. White and Asian students scored higher than Hispanic and Black students on literally every domain.
0: And the reason for that is aside from the better schools and better funding, we know that we have summers off. And a lot of poorer and socioeconomically challenged people in this country are Predominantly Hispanic and Black, and they have less opportunities for summer resources and summer education. Whereas a lot of white and Asian students do have those opportunities, like summer camps and hands on learning experiences over the summer. And so, while they are furthering their education over the summer, a lot of uh, Hispanic and Black students are actually decreasing in their learning. And so There's actually been a study done in a school district that you can read about in the book, Outliers. It included a lower funded school and all of the students had previously not engaged in any summer learning opportunities, but they were all enrolled in summer camps over the summer that would encourage their education. And they actually did so much better the next school year because they were allowed to keep growing over the three months we have off rather than lose everything that they had learned and have to start over again.
1: Right. And I think that on an average, the number of days that American students spend in school is less than in other countries. And that is definitely one of the factors which affects how students fare in these international tests. Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea, Taipei, and Japan are the top five, and they continue to dominate the rankings in other tests like the TIMSS, which is a series of math and science tests that are given every four years to 10-year-olds and 14- year olds around the world so if you look internationally our students do not fare very well we don't spend enough time in school we don't have enough resources allocated to schools we don't pay our teachers enough and we do not take this on as a priority except perversely during a time of uh, pandemic when we want to force all our kids back to school It looks like 90% of teachers are buying school supplies with their own personal funds in this country, in public schools.
0: Yes, and I know that a lot of my teachers have faced uh, similar struggles. They're trying to educate the future generations with m- barely enough money to get by on their own. And it's really implausible to expect them to be good educators if they don't have the resources to provide us with.
1: This is a big problem. We know this, That. Over the years, teachers have in fact had to resort to strikes in order to get resources for their students. This is another group of essential workers that we are not paying attention to these days who deserve much more of our support because they are shaping the future of this country. So, I think what we can all do as voting adults is to make sure that we understand our local school district funding and composition and that we support candidates whose agenda includes reforming the way our schools are funded and the way we allocate resources in our local community. We cannot end this problem unless we all resolve to end it together. We have to understand that keeping the children safe has to be a priority but it is not gonna be possible in schools that are not funded adequately. And trying to achieve learning when we still remain so segregated and so financially separated is very hard. And there are lots of good ideas being generated across the country for how we should reform our educational system so that the students of the future have a chance to absorb and learn well enough to be productive members of society
0: so as we're going back to school this year with all of the new challenges that are being presented by this pandemic we need to take a look at all of the challenges that have been facing our education system for centuries and we need to start investing in our schools and essentially in our future Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or more, please feel free to contact us. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your streaming service if you haven't already. Recommend us to your friends. And let us know if you have any ideas for future podcast episodes. Thank you guys so much.
1: This has been History, written by The Losers.